This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Reagan OMB director David Stockman argues in his new book, Trump's War on Capitalism, that the economic policies of the Trump administration were a failure. He's interviewed by New York Times Federal Reserve and Economy reporter Gina Smilik. This is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. If you read nonfiction books and thought-provoking discussions with authors spark your interest, you'll find the Book TV newsletter a valuable learning resource for staying informed. Hi, John here, one of the producers at Book TV. Think of the Book TV newsletter as your weekly literary update, your source for advance notice of program highlights, featured book festivals, and in-depth profiles of nonfiction authors. Explore the Book TV newsletter to organize your viewing and ensure you never miss a significant literary event. Be a Book TV insider with our weekly newsletter because Book TV is television for serious readers like you. Subscribe today at cspan.org/connect. That's cspan.org/connect. David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about your book, Trump's War on Capitalism. Um, I usually, you know, when I do an interview about a book, I always like to start by asking the author, what motivated you to write this, and what are you trying to sort of convey at a high level? What's your big point with this book? My biggest point is that Donald Trump is no way, shape, or form an economic conservative. He's barely a Republican when it comes to the basics, you know, of free markets, free trade, um, uh, minimal uh, uh, government uh, out of Washington. He has a record that has been uh, totally exaggerated in terms of what actually happened during 2017 to 2020. Um, and he uh, committed the unforgivable sin of ordering effectively a shutdown of the economy in March uh, 2020 uh, without any regard for all the issues that uh, are important to conservatives, personal liberty, <laughs> private property, uh, you know, uh, markets. All of this uh, was swept uh, aside in a panic uh, over uh, COVID because he was listening to Dr. Fauci and Burks and all the wrong people. This is unforgivable because it's had lasting effects and we'll go into some of it in terms of the massive stimulus spending that occurred, the crazy money printing that was generated by the Fed after uh, March 2020. All of this paved the way for the inflationary surge that we've been struggling with and uh, set the economy back, uh, you know, years and years and created a, a fiscal mess uh, that is truly um, uh, uh, dangerous as we move into the future. So I, I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, remind Republicans that uh, Donald Trump may have the right enemies, and I agree with that. I mean, to the extent that uh, his enemies are the New York Times, <laughs> the CNN, uh, the mainstream media, the Washington establishment, uh, that's all uh, fine and good. The problem is he had the right enemies, but he had the wrong policies. Every one of the key policies uh, in the economic uh, realm uh, were wrong. Even in foreign policy, where I think he had the right slogans, he started to talk about America first. He started to talk about the obsolescence of NATO. All of those were good points. But when it came to actual policy, he did almost nothing to implement those uh, changes in national security policy. And worse, he took a $600 billion defense budget that he inherited 
which was already way too big, and pushed it up to 850 billion on the theory that uh, if he had a bigger club, uh, he could make the world behave according to his own lights. Well, all of this, uh, you know, <laughs> tarnished uh, the record uh, completely. Uh, and I don't think, uh, you know, my motivation, you asked the motivation, is I profoundly believe he doesn't deserve a second chance, that uh, the country needs uh, a restoration of a real uh, conservative government. If we can't get it in 24 because the right candidate isn't there, then, uh, you know, rebuild the brand, rebuild the party, uh, go after it in 2028. But let's not uh, Trumpify the Republican Party and turn it into this kind of grotesque, you know, spending and easy money and uh, uh, interventionist, uh, neocon-driven uh, uh, operation that it is today. Okay, interesting. So we have a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> We're obviously going to get to immigration. We're going to get to national security, all of these, the COVID response, all of these sort of issues that you've just lighted on. But during early in the book, you call Trump an all-around big government statist, which is uh, seems like quite the statement. So I was wondering if you could unpack that for us a little bit. What do you mean by that phrase? Uh, by a big government statist, I mean... Uh, you know, he inherited a public debt that was way too big, 20 trillion. By the time he left, it was 28 trillion uh, just in four years. That's a big number, I know, but put it in perspective and ask the question, how long did it take us to get the first eight trillion of the public debt, the same number he uh, generated during his term? The answer is 216 years. <laughs> the first uh, 43 presidents uh, through 205 uh, uh, created uh, eight trillion of debt. He did it in four years. Uh, the deficit averaged nine percent of GDP during his four years, uh, compared to an average of two and a half percent during uh, among all presidents uh, since say 1950. It was even uh, dramatically bigger than Obama, who of course the Republicans spent eight years criticizing uh, for being a big spender and running up uh, the national debt. But uh, the reason I think he's a statist is that, uh, you know, when it comes to foreign trade, he basically uh, decided I'm going to levy a huge uh, tariff on imports coming in uh, from China. It averages, you know, about 20 percent on 360 billion worth of imports. That's 75 billion or so a year of taxes on consumers, but it's actually a lot worse than that because in the categories that uh, are bear the Trump tariffs, uh, you know, there's about 1.2 uh, trillion of imports. Uh, China accounts for about 30 percent. So when you raise the landed price by 20 percent of everything coming out of China, in those categories, uh, the competitors raise their prices as well. So, you know, I compute it's something like $150 billion a year was, uh, uh, you know, put on the economy, uh, added to the inflationary pressure as a result of a protectionist trade policy that's about as statist as you can get. I think the same thing is true with his wall in Mexico. Yeah, we have a, a huge disorder at the border, 
But the, the issue isn't closed or open or building a wall. The issue is these people are coming here because they want jobs, they want a better life. Well, if we had an organized guest worker program uh, in a country that is seriously uh, suffering from a labor shortage and a native workforce that is actually shrinking, the right thing to do was not to build a wall. The right thing to do was to set up a guest worker program and uh, welcome new uh, workers uh, into our economy. So you could go across a lot of issues and uh, they add up uh, to the idea that uh, the strong man sitting in the White House can make everything better by uh, manipulating the fiscal, the monetary, the regulatory uh, tools of uh, the state uh, to improve on uh, economic and social life. Uh, that's statism, <laughs> and that's uh, basically uh, what uh, Republicans should be against. Uh, that's the uh, job of the Democrats to advocate that, uh, and Trump uh, basically uh, essentially did the same thing. And we'll get back to a lot of those more specific policy points, but just sort of as we get into the the beginning of the book, one thing that I thought was interesting, one way that you framed this book, was kind of talking about the economic track record under Trump and saying that he maybe shouldn't be getting as much credit as he is with voters for his economic record. I wonder if you could walk us through why you think that, where where you think people's perceptions differ from reality when it comes to the economic track record under President Trump. Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and it's the first chapter of my book. And uh, the point was that a lot of conservative uh, Republicans that I've talked to over the years say, yes, uh, you know, he was a terrible big spender. The debt uh, soared on his watch. Uh, the uh, lockdowns were uh, not the uh, smartest thing that we've ever done. But, and there's this big but, but we had a great economy. We, he claimed it was the best economy ever. And uh, the answer is the so-called MAGA economy was not the greatest economy ever. And so I went through it in detail, every administration back to Truman. And if you lay it out, uh, Trump had the worst record in terms of economic growth uh, of any president, Republican or Democrat, uh, going back to the early 1950s. The average uh, economic growth during his four years was 1.5%. The average uh, for all presidents up through uh, 2016 uh, was over 3% So uh, per year, of course. So uh, we're talking about a growth rate that is half of uh, the historic level. If you look at jobs, well, he didn't generate any jobs despite uh, everything he says. There were 145 and a half million jobs when he was sworn in in January uh, 2017. There were 142.5 million jobs when he left in 2021, reluctantly or otherwise. So he, 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 there was a loss of 3 million non-farm payroll jobs during his four years. So that isn't, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, a great job creator either. And then, of course, people will say, oh, that's because of uh, the COVID and the uh, lockdowns in the spring of uh, 2020. But, you know, I go through that in, at length in the book as well, because I think it's important to, um, to raise what I call the Harry Truman standard. And that, of course, famously was the buck stops here. 
And the, you know, the lockdowns and the economic chaos that resulted in the spring of 2020, including, you know, a 30 percent uh, drop in GDP at an annualized run rate was not caused by the virus. It was caused by the lockdown. It was caused by the utter fear that was sown in the American public as a result of the president of the White House task force day in and day out using the bully pul uh, pulpit uh, to scare the hell out of the public. And so, you know, we, uh, we got uh, the economic uh, collapse uh, that was uh, totally unnecessary. So you, you can't uh, let him off the hook, but even if you do and say, well, the world stopped in February uh, 2020, even then the growth rate of jobs under Trump was about 1.4% uh, per year, uh, well less than the two to two and a half percent norm that you can see uh, in the record going back to most of the presidents uh, since uh, Eisenhower. So um, again, um, the, the uh, point I, I'm trying to make is there, it wasn't a magnificent MAGA economy. Uh, and if you look at sort of the bottom line, which is uh, what I would call the the core metric that talks, that addresses living standards and are we progressing or are we uh, regressing? Uh, you know, that's real GDP per capita. And Trump has the worst record of any president practically of modern times. The average growth uh, of GDP per capita was about 2.3% per year going back all the way to the 50s. It was only 1% uh, under uh, Donald Trump. So therefore, you can't wash away, uh, you can't erase all of the bad policy from an economic uh, perspective that happened on his watch on the grounds that he made the economy hum. First of all, he didn't. And second, he left a very <laughs> difficult legacy of debt uh, you know, at the U.S. Treasury, and more importantly, uh, a failure uh, of the Fed to finally normalize interest rates um, as the economy got into the uh, sweet spot of the business cycle recovery. By the 2016, we were in the sweet spot. The economy was moving on its own uh, two, two legs, so to speak. It didn't need uh, stimulus uh, from Washington any longer. And particularly, it didn't need zero interest rates. So the period 2016 to 2020 should have been a time for normalization of policy. The deficit uh, should have been brought down to, to close to zero uh, as the economy went into the middle and final stages of a long uh, cycle recovery. And the Fed should have been uh, encouraged to uh, you know, dramatically uh, normalize uh, interest rates, get out of uh, the QE business, which it stayed in uh, uh, until uh, you know, well into t 2018. But what happened uh, on, on Trump's watch? He spent four years haranguing and harassing the Fed uh, when it tried uh, even uh, sort of tepidly uh, to get interest rates back off uh, the zero bound and to get uh, the, the, this balance sheet that had grown from 
you know, 900 billion uh, prior, uh, prior to the crisis uh, to uh, four and a half trillion. Uh, that was supposed to shrink. Even Bernanke had promised that was going to happen. And as they tried to do that on Trump's watch, he came down on all fours, uh, uh, you know, uh, attacking the Fed uh, practically every other week. Uh, and so we didn't get the normalization. What we got was a very weak uh, Fed chairman who was appointed uh, by Trump, uh, who kept uh, QE in place until March 20, uh, 20 uh, you know, uh, until uh, uh, March 2022. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we already had an inflationary whirlwind uh, generating. We could see, you could see that in the numbers. And yet uh, they continued uh, uh, to uh, keep, uh, you know, uh, interest rates at practically zero, and they continued to buy uh, 120 billion of bonds and other debt paper uh, per month. So all of this was put in motion uh, uh, during uh, the Trump uh, regime, and uh, we ended up with uh, a really. Uh, uh, serious uh, monetary mess on our hands today. I want, I want to come back to the Fed, but before we do that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about sort of the economic record that you were citing earlier. Sure. I think it's important to note for our viewers who might not be as familiar with the statistics that what we saw in the first couple of years of the Trump administration before the onset of the pandemic basically looked quite a bit like what we were seeing in the years before Trump took office. You know, we were late in an economic cycle, jobs were going growing in sort of that 150,000 to 200,000 per month range, growth was in the sort of 1.7, 1.8 percent annual range, you know, pretty consistent with those last couple of years. And so I guess I wonder, you know, A, do you think it's fair to criticize that as being slow growth at a time when it seemed kind of like what perhaps the economy was capable of? So that, that's question A. And then question B is, why do you think it's fair to include the coronavirus within that period? Because I think a lot of economists would say the coronavirus was such an exceptional unusual circumstance that it really shouldn't be part of the economic record here. Well, uh, it happened, the, 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 you got to separate the virus uh, and the health issue from the lockdown and the, uh, you know, disaster that hit the economy uh, just out of the blue in March and April 2020. I've got one statistic in the book that I think is worth uh, mentioning, and that is the place where most of the jobs had been created in the previous, uh, you know, cycle recovery, for better or worse, was in the leisure and hospitality sector, restaurants, bars, hotels, etc., sports arenas. Uh, in one month of April uh, 2020, uh, the job, uh, uh, the index of hours, I use that, which I think is better than just the pure headcount, but the index of hours worked dropped by 55% in one month. I mean, it basically the whole sector, uh, what, what we might call uh, uh, social uh, 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 venues, uh, uh, got shut down. And uh, the uh, hours worked by the end of that month or early uh, May had been rolled all the way back to 1979 levels in those industries. In other words, 43 year, years worth of growth 
in hours worked and head counts was wiped out in 30 days because of uh, this uh, you know, whirlwind uh, that hit the economy uh, as a result of the uh, orders that were coming out of uh, Fauci and the president's task force. So I think you cannot let him off the hook. He should have known better if he had any principles whatsoever uh, about uh, markets and about how the role of government and, and uh, w had been willing to consult uh, lots of experts on the outside who cautioned against it, you know, uh, day one. Uh, that never would have happened and uh, therefore you can't let him off the hook. But even if you do and stop the world, as I was saying, in February 2020, before any of these lockdown impacts happen, uh, the growth rate of uh, uh, employment uh, still was only 1.4 percent uh, per year uh, in the three, three years and a couple months of his term, well uh, below the average um, of, uh, you know, the last 34 years. Or even if you take your point about the business cycle, I, I think it's fair to compare the Obama second term with Trump's first three years before the COVID. And if you look at the job creation rate, uh, well, it was 215 per month during Obama's second term and 145 uh, per month, 145,000 per month uh, during Trump. So he, he, you know, he was 30% short of what even Obama uh, had uh, generated. Now, uh, I'm not saying that uh, the economy should have been growing by leaps and bounds uh, because there are all kinds of reasons that I think growth has uh, been sharply curtailed on a uh, trend basis, that basically due to bad policy, too much money printing by the Fed, too much speculation, too much, uh, you know, uh, siphoning of capital into financial engineering rather than investment. Um, there's lots of things we could go into, the massive uh, public and private debt that's been created. Uh, but the point is, you, you shouldn't be bragging about the greatest economy ever when it wasn't remotely the case. Uh, it just, it didn't happen. It's a myth. Uh, you know, we had a very uh, uh, poorly performing economy that needed fundamental reform. It needed a Fed that was getting out of uh, the bubble generation business. It needed a Congress that was going to attempt uh, to balance the budget and get the Treasury out of the uh, uh, bond pits and out of the financial markets. Uh, it needed more workers uh, to uh, meet, uh, uh, you know, uh, growth requirements because the native-born workforce is shrinking, as I, as I said. Well, Trump uh, stood in the way of all those. He wanted easier money, he wanted more spending, he wanted bigger debts, he wanted more treasury borrowing, he wanted to close down the border, uh, both uh, in terms of people uh, who might have uh, come here to work and goods uh, that wanted to come uh, in here uh, as a result of trade. So. Uh, in other words, uh, you had a very poorly performing economy overlaid with policies that only made it worse. 
Interesting. And, you know, one thing that you talk about quite a bit in the book and which you just alluded to is this idea that the coronavirus shutdown shouldn't have happened, that they somehow went against principles that Trump should have adhered to. I guess I wonder if you could lay out for viewers what you think should have happened instead. Why do you think the lockdown shouldn't have occurred and what should have been the alternative? Uh, well, well, first of all, it shouldn't have occurred because it was basically a one-size-fits-all across the board. Everybody, you know, was sent home from school, sent home from work, sent home from the shopping center, sent home from the restaurants, etc. When it was clear from the very beginning that, uh, you know, the coronavirus was a serious uh, health uh, challenge, but it wasn't anything like the black plague or some kind of uh, lethal uh, um, uh, virus that was going to take people down left and right. And I have some books, I have some facts, I should say, in my book that I think dramatizes this. If you look at the so-called uh, uh, with COVID uh, death rates uh, in 2020, before we had the uh, you know, vaccines and, and, and whatever impact that had, we can set that aside. But if you look at 2020 and you look at the population, I looked at it in six categories with, you know, uh, what I call the school age uh, population under 16. And then I had the young people. And then I had the core working uh, uh, age population, near retirees, uh, grandparents and great grandparents. I mention all this because if you go from top to bottom, the uh, uh, fatality rate uh, for the school age population was two-tenths of one per 100,000. For the working age population, 30 to 55 or so, it was 20 per 100,000. For the great-grandparents population, it was 2,000 per 100,000. In other words, the risk of death was 10,000 times higher among the great-grandparents' uh, population or generation as uh, young people, and then there was a curve all the way in between. Well, that is the very opposite of uh, something uh, suggesting across-the-board uh, lock lockdowns, shutdowns, and basically a termination of social activity. So it should have been focused entirely. As the great Barrington authors and statements said uh, very uh, early after that, the fall of uh, 2020, on the most vulnerable populations who were uh, compromised uh, because of age or because of comorbidity. And the, st the statistics speak for themselves. Now, you can say, well, maybe they didn't know that in March and April uh, of, 19, of 2020, and, and you got to give them a pass. Well, the answer is they had dramatic evidence even before Trump made his March 16th, uh, you know, call to shut down the economy and declared an emergency. And that was, uh, you know, this ship that had been floating around uh, uh, the uh, 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 Princess uh, 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 cruise ship. And uh, there were something like 3,600 people on that, uh, staff and uh, guests, uh, and very heavily skewed to the elderly, uh, because that's who goes on cruises, the Diamond Princess uh, ship. And yet the facts were known in March 
that the fatality rate for the population of that ship that was close quarters and they'd been tested many times and they just couldn't land at any port, no one would take them. Uh, the fatality rate uh, for people under uh, 70 was not zero, <laughs> or the survival rate was 100%. And even for the elderly uh, population uh, in that group, uh, you know, there were seven deaths uh, in the total population, and so a 99.5% survival rate. So if you knew those facts, and they should have known those facts, that here, here was like a live, real-time demonstration that this is a uh, illness you don't particularly want to get, but it is not a black plague that requires us to throw away uh, the Constitution to throw away uh, our playbook in terms of how you run a healthy free enterprise economy, uh, how you allow uh, personal liberty. There was no basis uh, for that uh, extreme uh, lurch uh, into basically totalitarian economics and uh, Trump uh, uh, presided over it. He authorized it. Uh, he, uh, you know, uh, went along with it for months and months and months and uh, you just can't let him off the hook. That's probably one of the worst things that any president has done in modern times in my view and it's uh, uh, in itself, those lockdowns, that whole uh, COVID disaster uh, is um, you know an indictment for which there is no uh, escape. It seems important to note that even with the lockdowns, excess mortality from COVID was something like 620,000 in 2020 and 540,000 in 2021 per the National Institutes for Health. And that is you know, dramatic for context. The flu is something like 37 to 70,000 a year. So, so pretty significant excess mortality even with the lockdown, which I guess begs the question, you know, is there any level of pandemic that you would have seen a lockdown being appropriate for? Like, like, is that kind of public health response ever appropriate or are you just against that kind of response in, on principle? Well, I think if you had a true black plague where you had a fatality, you know, because the excess fatality uh, uh, rates that you've cited there, uh, I, I guess they're, uh, I mean, obviously they're correct numbers, but again, that wasn't a black plague. If you look at the uh, all-in death rates for all uh, causes uh, in the United States, the death rate in 2020 uh, was actually lower. Now this is 2020, we're in the worst of the COVID, okay? And before you had vaccine and uh, before we started to come out of the foxholes, the death rate in 2020 for the population as a whole was lower than it had been in 2003. Okay, and as I can remember 203, it wasn't like some nightmare uh, disaster uh, where people were dropping like flies. It was even lower than it had been in 1991, which uh, again, wasn't uh, essentially a bad time in America. So therefore, it wasn't even in the ballpark that would require some kind of you know, uh, all uh, in uh, government uh, quasi-totalitarian response. I can imagine something bad enough uh, uh, that uh, might eventually warrant that, but we're talking about facts here, uh, and the, the facts aren't even close. If you're going to shut down the economy because there is an excess death rate 
that is, uh, you know, relatively modest compared to the normal trend. And if it's based on a change in the way they uh, categorize death certificates, uh, because this is all based on deaths with COVID, not because of COVID. Anybody that had a positive test uh, before in the hospital or after uh, they departed uh, uh, this world uh, uh, who ha tested positive uh, became uh, another uh, COVID uh, death certificate uh, statistic. And I, uh, I think that's uh, very dubious. Uh, so again, uh, if you uh, really uh, dig into this, uh, th th there is just no case, no case uh, for this kind of uh, sweeping uh, response. And it's on, uh, it's on uh, Trump's watch. I feel like we could continue talking about the coronavirus lockdown all day, but we only have 27 minutes left, so I okay. want to move on to yeah. another topic, okay. which is you talked about the Fed a little bit earlier. Um, and, yep. you know, Federal Reserve is near and dear to my heart. This is the topic mm -hmm. I cover every day. Um, and so I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier, which was that Donald Trump, you know, was up at the bully pulpit pressuring the Fed to keep interest rates low and, and to sort of keep the money printer worrying, um, even ahead of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, as someone who covers the Fed, you know, the institution is granted independence from the White House. Trump can't tell them what to do. In fact, Trump looked into whether he could fire Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, over the fact that Powell wasn't doing what he wanted him to do and discovered that he couldn't. He didn't have the statutory authority, statutory authority to do that. And so I guess I wonder if you could kind of square that for me. You know, to what extent was Trump actually being successful at pressuring the Fed in your mind and, and based on what evidence? Uh, I, you know, will never know uh, what factors uh, were going through the minds of the 12 members of the FOMC uh, when month after month uh, they uh, basically blinked when it was damn obvious that they should have been getting interest rates back into some normal area. But, you know, I, I don't believe in the Fed very much, okay? Uh, I think uh, it's, uh, you know, it's expanded its remit way beyond uh, anything that is necessary or rational. They're basically trying to uh, fine tune and micromanage a $26 trillion economy that's totally enmeshed in 104 trillion world GDP. They can't possibly do it. Their tools are too uh, rubbery and weak and uh, in, uh, you know, ineffective. Uh, they shouldn't be trying to do uh, all of the macro uh, ma management that they do. So I'm a total uh, a skeptic. I'm uh, anti -fed, as anti-Fed as they come, and that co colors uh, my view of this. But uh, the idea that a Republican president would say after, and listen, we, we have to look at the statistics. This is in 2017, 2018, when they were trying to begin to raise rates. We had gone through a period of eight years from the spring of 2008 until uh, Trump became uh, president, in, that's 108 months, in which the federal funds rate, when you subtract inflation, and I use the 16% uh, trim mean CPI, but you can use the other ones if you want, uh, was negative in real terms. In other words, eight years of negative real interest rates in the money market uh, eight years where you had interest rates almost uh, down on the uh, floorboard, the zero bound. And that was, uh, you know, totally inappropriate, I think. And a Republican president who inherited that, 
And uh, notwithstanding all the niceties about the independence of the Fed, which I think is uh, grossly exaggerated anyway, but anyway, notwithstanding that, he should have been quietly or publicly telling the Fed the crisis is over, the emergency ended long ago, it's time to do what Bernanke said he was going to do in 211, in 212, and that is normalize the balance sheet, that is get into QT big time and get rates back up above uh, you know, the flat line in terms of uh, real rates, that is, after inflation. Because if you don't do that, you're just going to fuel massive speculation, and that's what they did. And then Trump uh, took credit for a huge bubble in the stock market that was nothing, uh, had nothing to do with what he accomplished. It was uh, just uh, a, a result of this massive flood of Federal Reserve credit. So um, I, uh, I think, uh, you know, you have to look at the point in time in which things happen. Uh, you know, there are obviously some fundamental uh, principles or truism about policy, but the business cycle is important. And when you got into 2017, you were in the sweet spot. You were in the middle, if not the uh, back end of what had been a weak but long lasting uh, recovery from the Great Recession. And so it was time that Republicans, conventional, you know, conservative, econo uh, uh, conservative Republicans would have been saying, normalize, normalize uh, the fiscal posture, normalize uh, interest rates in the Fed position, get it out of, uh, you know, this massive 120 billion per month uh, uh, bond buying, uh, you know, insanity. But of course, uh, Trump came from the other side. I mean, William Jennings Bryan probably would have turned blue with envy uh, in terms of uh, what uh, Trump was actually doing in monetary policy. In fact, you just have to say, state it. On monetary policy, Donald Trump is a complete crackpot. He has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, and I have a little thing in the book where I point out the only reason he allegedly got rich is that he was a big speculator in New, New York real estate. Uh, condo prices went up 20, 250% uh, from the late 90s uh, to when he became president. Uh, interest rates, uh, the carry cost, all the debt that financed it uh, went from 4% to 1%. So uh, what's not to like about a world in which asset prices are soaring and the cost of carry is being driven uh, to the floorboard? Uh, well, that, that isn't sustainable, obviously, but uh, Trump uh, learned from that that the, more, uh, the lower the interest rate, the better, and the more money uh, they print, uh, allegedly the wealthier will become. It was totally a wrong, bad life lesson, and yet uh, that's the baggage he comes with. And we should note for context for our viewers who maybe aren't as familiar, don't have these graphs memorized, <laughs> the Fed had been um, raising interest rates from the end of 2015 up through 2018, but very slowly. They lowered them a couple of times in 2019 and then cut them pretty dramatically at the start of 2020. Likewise, they had stopped their quantitative easing, that policy of buying bonds, and it actually started to reverse the process, but it stopped that. And then there were some market disruptions in 2019 that uh, prompted them to start buying bonds 
at a sort of slow pace again. And then starting in early 2020, they began buying bonds at a very, very rapid pace. And so the reason I it do all of that introduction is that this factors really heavily into the next portion of your book, which is where you talk about sort of the response to CARES, both the Fed response, this big bond buying and very low interest rates, and the fiscal policy response, the Congress passed government spending packages, and how they interacted. And I wonder if you could tell our viewers a little bit about how sort of you characterize those, what you think the consequences were. Yeah, uh, first of all, we're dealing with such huge numbers that you have to put a little perspective on it and I guess I've had some you know history or experience over the years uh, when it comes to big budget numbers but uh, the cares the original cares act 2.2 trillion was actually tabled uh, written and passed in 11 days okay now how do you pass a 2.2 trillion uh, uh, spending bill some 800 pages that had everything except the kitchen sink included in terms of money going to every sector and every uh, uh, constituency you can imagine how do you do that in 11 days when that amounts to what at that time would have been 45% of the existing you know in place budget in other words uh, in 11 days they put pumped more money into uh, the spending stream than uh, you know uh, 45% as much money into the spending stream as uh, the whole budget from defense to social security to interest to, to student aid and all, all the rest of it that, you know it was crazy it was insane. No, uh, a conservative president would have had the veto pen out and uh, had it in red ink ready to veto. And Trump uh, urged it on. In fact, uh, a couple days uh, after he said, we're shutting down the economy, he said, but don't worry. Uh, uh, there, help, money's on the way. Help is on the way. Uh, we're going to just, uh, you know, flood you uh, with uh, relief. Well, you know, that's, that's part of the whole mess uh, that we're dealing with. And then uh, the Fed made it all possible. So the congressman who passed this uh, bill on a bipartisan basis uh, should have gotten a pretty bad feedback from the bond market saying, hey, if you're going to uh, pump the deficit at this late stage of the business cycle uh, at this uh, kind of rate, uh, interest rates are going to go up uh, and go up substantially and so the Fed stepped in and and basically monetized most of the new debt that was being created overnight uh, by uh, by uh, this uh, first bill and then of course the CARES Act was just a warm-up in December they put another two trillion on and uh, shortly thereafter uh, Biden added his two trillion most of which was just a continuation of like the six hundred dollar a week unemployment topper that uh, 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 Trump had backed and uh, signed into law twice uh, another round of stimulus checks which he had actually advocated 2,000 uh, per person during the campaign when he was running for re-election so you know I say he's as responsible for that last two trillion as anybody else well it's it added up to 6.5 trillion in 12 months I mean this is crazy it was hundred and fifty percent of the normal federal budget 
was added on in uh, 365 days, and most of it was either signed by Trump or uh, were uh, measures, a continuation of measures that he had uh, strongly um, backed. And so uh, that would have caused uh, chaos in the financial system had the Fed not stepped in and monetized the whole thing. And of course, it was only a matter of time then before we were off to the races with you know the highest inflation since uh, the 1970s, the highest inflation in 40 years. And it didn't come by immaculate conception. Uh, it didn't come uh, out of the global oil market uh, or uh, anything else. Uh, it was basically manufactured by central banks led by the Fed and governments uh, led by Washington spending like there was no tomorrow. And I want to circle back to the inflation in just a moment, but before we do that, I wanted to talk oh, just a beat further about the CARES Act, that first package that passed in early 2020. Um, as you noted, you know, President Trump signed it into law, he had pushed for it, but Congress passed it with pretty broad, I think, complete bipartisan support, if memory serves. And so I guess I wonder, you know, is it fair to lay the blame for that package at President Trump's feet when it was something, obviously, that Congress wanted as well? Oh, it's totally fair to blame him. The bully pulpit is in the Oval Office. He should have said, absolutely, no way, no how. Uh, if you send a bill that's even remotely uh, this uh, indiscriminate, there were no standards, there were no uh, uh, monitoring mechanisms. It was, they were just passing out uh, pork like uh, Washington had never done before. He should have said, dare, I dare you to send it down here because it's going to get the veto, and uh, I dare you to try to override it because I'm going to go to the American public. Uh, we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, engage in this kind of absolute, abject uh, fiscal uh, profligacy. So that's the first point. He is totally to blame for the fact that they got a head of steam up on Capitol Hill and it was the biggest, uh, you know, uh, pork barrel, uh, uh, you know, uh, trading operation uh, that we've ever seen, uh, and truly, uh, the, that we've ever seen in peacetime or wartime. And then the one guy who had the, the common sense the integrity and the courage to say, no way, we're not going to pass this on a voice vote, because they wanted to pass it on a voice vote, was Tom Massey, Congressman Massey from uh, uh, Kentucky. And what did Donald Trump say? He denounced him uh, viciously and wanted and demanded that he be run out of the Republican Party. So is Donald Trump uh, uh, responsible uh, at the end of the day uh, for this uh, CARES disaster and then the $4 trillion that got laid on top of that? Absolutely. And returning back to the inflation point that you were making earlier, so, you know, obviously we did see in the wake of the pandemic starting in early 2021, a real takeoff in inflation. The consumer price index, which is sort of the most commonly used measure of inflation, peaked at 9.1% on a year-over-year -year basis in mid-2022. It's now down to something like 3%. I guess I wonder, you know, can you walk us through what you think drove that inflation? And then I wonder, you talk quite a bit about sort of this stagflation idea in the book, but I wonder if you can kind of square that with the fact that inflation has now faded quite a bit. 
Well, I would say it's not faded as much as the headline number would tell you. I, as I said, I look at something that's more of a core. I think the 16% trim mean CPI is a good measure. That was running 2 to 3% even before COVID, even before February uh, 2020. So uh, even if you believed in 2% inflation targeting, which I don't, it should be zero. That's what price stability means, but even if you believe in we should it, just We should note for viewers that 2% is the Fed's inflation target. Yeah, so yeah. They aim for 2% annual inflation. Right. Uh, but even if you believe in it, we were already running ahead of it, and it, it eventually peaked in September on the proper measure. In other words, as you know, the 16% trim mean very quickly takes out the uh, lowest 8% of price changes and the highest 8% each month. It's a different uh, item each month of the thousands in the BLS basket and so therefore it gives you the trend without uh, some of the short-run monthly uh, volatility that comes when there's a big spike in say energy prices up or down or food or other commodities in any event it peaked at 7% uh, in September uh, 2022 it's now running at 4% so it's come down I agree but it's still double uh, the, the uh, trend rate the run rate uh, where it was uh, before all of this uh, COVID uh, stimulus and uh, money printing uh, 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 took off. Now, did it? Uh, did this cause uh, the inflation? Of course it did. It, did, it doesn't happen by immac immaculate conception. And it happened because you put all that stimulus money into the economy. And I, I think another statistic I have in the book is well worth mentioning. And that is, uh, you know, every month, uh, the uh, uh, statistical authorities publish data on transfer payments uh, from government. That's a very good statistic to look at, but the normal run rate of all transfer payments, and this is food stamps and welfare and housing and also social insurance and Medicare, Medicaid, the rest of it, was running about 3.1 trillion at an annual rate right before March 2020. Uh, after the first bill was enacted, the run rate of transfer payments was six trillion per annum. And by the time the second COVID uh, or third COVID bill, uh, the Biden final installment got enacted, the run rate of transfer payments that were flooding into the economy and being spent was eight trillion. Now, I, I can't emphasize that enough. When you go from a system that is basically being watered, uh, you know, watered with transfer of money to spend at a three trillion rate, and suddenly a year later, it's running at eight trillion at an annual rate, you are shocking the economy with spending, uh, a spending impulse almost overnight, unlike anything we've ever seen uh, in historic cycles. So that's where the inflation came from, because further, uh, most of the money that was being spent incrementally from the stimulus checks or the $600 per month toppers or just the regular paychecks that most of the uh, public was still earning, 
couldn't be spent for the most part in social venues, uh, restaurants, bars, etc. They were all shut down. So people went hand over fist into buying uh, merchandise good, durable goods. And of course, all of those were sourced abroad. And so suddenly the supply chains break down, uh, the inventory in the pipeline uh, system uh, within uh, the country was totally depleted. And uh, you got a huge surge uh, in prices for durable goods that had been going down year after year after year uh, for the last uh, couple of decades. So that's where the whole thing started. And then uh, it simply uh, uh, propagated uh, through the system. But none of it would have happened without the shutdowns. None of it would have happened without the massive, uh, you know, unreviewed stimulus bills. None of it would have happened if the Fed hadn't monetized all that debt. In other words, there were three checkpoints along the way. You could have said, uh, we've got a pretty serious uh, seasonal virus on our hands, and we're going to do everything we can to protect the elderly uh, and uh, other uh, vulnerable populations, but it wouldn't have taken much extra spending, uh, believe me, uh, they could have done that. Or second, uh, they, they could have said, we're not going to bail out the economy uh, if uh, just because uh, we're shutting down things temporarily. And third, they could have said, we're not printing the money in order to fund these uh, you know, out-of-control bailouts. So uh, that, the, that nexus, those uh, three factors, and then if you lay on top of that, by then, the Trump tariffs were beginning to bite. And so again, I said it was a 75 billion a year upcharge just on the covered Chinese goods, but I think it was more like 150 billion if you take uh, all the other uh, imports in those categories that uh, were uh, under the price umbrella of the uh, Trump tariff. And then if you add on top of that, uh, the drying up of uh, you know, new workers uh, coming uh, through the immigration route, uh, you had a perfect storm. Not enough workers, not enough product, uh, spending uh, like never before in money printing uh, that was uh, really beyond uh, imagination. Remember, uh, you mentioned that um, in the fall of 2019, when we had the uh, little hiccup in the bond market, uh, uh, in the repo market, they started, uh, they restarted QE. But at that point, they had gotten the balance sheet down to 3.8 trillion of the Fed uh, from the mid 40s, and th they went from 3.8 trillion in September 2019. Uh, to nine trillion within the next two or three months. I mean, th this is out of this world. Nothing like this has ever been done before. And if people are surprised that one, we had this burst of inflation, uh, they shouldn't be. And second, if they think it's all over because the headline rate is down to three, uh, you know, for a, a month or two, uh, I think, uh, you know, they're, they're deluded. We have, you know, injected into the economy uh, some massive inflationary pressure that's going to take uh, years uh, to uh, eventually uh, work out of the system.
Okay, interesting. And you know, I think we are just about out of yeah. time, but I wonder, you know, before before we wrap, you know, you talk quite a bit in the book about immigration, and I'm sorry that we didn't manage to get to that topic in yeah. more detail, but I wonder if you could just sort of lay out your arguments. I know it's something C-SPAN viewers are really interested in, so I wonder if you could just lay out your arguments and maybe sort of conclude with some final thoughts. Well, I think the, you have to reject the demagoguery that started when Trump came down the escalator in Trump Tower and start talking about, uh, you know, the rapists and murders and, uh, you know, other bad people coming across the border. That is totally a wrong characterization, overwhelmingly. 95% of the people coming to the border are coming for jobs and for a better life. They're not criminals. They're not drug dealers. Uh, they're not foreign terrorists. This is just a lot of baloney. And our economy was built on uh, welcoming uh, immigrant populations. That's how we uh, became the leading industrial power of the world. Obviously, uh, you know, from 1870 to uh, post-World uh, War II. And uh, we uh, need to understand that what, what is needed, the reason they're all illegal is we have a stupid law that says, if you want to come to the United States, you have to either get a family-based uh, 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 slot in the quota system, uh, or you have to become a refugee uh, or seek asylum. Well, that's, of course, it creates a mess. It's a bureaucratic nightmare. Well, let's not say they're asylum seekers, the people coming from Central America or Mexico. They're job seekers. Have a job program. Have a guest worker program. Give them a permit to work. Let them go to Kansas City or Detroit or, you know, Wilmington, Delaware, wherever their jobs. And as long as uh, they're uh, earning a paycheck, uh, they should be entitled to stay here, not be deported, not be harassed, not be chased down by the hobnail boots uh, of the whole immigration control apparatus. And if they uh, are good citizens and pay taxes for a half decade or decade, they should be eligible for citizenship, no questions asked. That's how the whole, uh, you know, great miracle of uh, the American economy was built uh, over the uh, 100 years uh, prior to uh, 1980. And I think that is all we have time for. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. David Stockman, author of Trump's War on Capitalism, um, and here talking with Gina Smilik from The New York Times. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you are interested in podcasts about nonfiction books, listen to C-SPAN's Book Notes Plus podcast for interviews with authors and historians hosted by Brian Lamb.